0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Aileen Lerner, a co-founder and CEO of Interviewing.io, and Tasneem Minadakis, Director of Engineering at Google. Uh, Aileen, Tasneem, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Aileen, why don't you start with the introduction of what interviewing.io is and how you came to start it? What is your sort of experience and background in the recruiting industry?
1: My background in this industry sort of spans all sides. So I was a software engineer for a time, um, about five years. Then I kind of fell into recruiting by accident. I worked in-house. I ran hiring at a company called TrialPay and at Udacity as well. Ran my own recruiting firm for two years and then uh, started interviewing I.O. about three and a half years ago. We alternate between I.O. and .io. We still haven't settled on it. <laughs> Um I've really seen engineering hiring as I mentioned from all sides and one of my biggest frustrations with it was just How I always seemed to work with really fantastic engineers who didn't have the pedigree that we expect Fantastic engineers to have so maybe they didn't go to a specific school or they they hadn't worked at one of a few companies before and how they were always among the best and somehow when we were hiring engineers we were still looking for a very narrow set of criteria Back when I was a recruiter, I started writing stuff on the internet about hiring, in part because when I first started my recruiting firm, I didn't have any business, and so just wanted to fill the void with something to do, but also um, because I was just really frustrated. And um, back when I was a trial pay, I ran this study, what was more of an experiment, I guess, where I looked at all the resumes um, of folks that had applied to us and then folks that had actually gotten offers and tried to work backwards and figure out... What attributes of a resume might be most predictive of somebody getting an offer? And what I discovered really surprised me and killed my faith in the resume as anything valuable forever. What I discovered was that where people went to school didn't matter. How senior they were didn't matter. How advanced their degree was didn't matter. You know, whether they had a GitHub didn't matter. Like, how many projects they had, how many languages they knew. Like, none of the things that we think matter mattered, except one, and I'll get to that in a moment. But the thing that mattered most, by far, in away was how many grammatical errors and typos people had on their resumes. The next most important thing was how concisely they described what they did. Like, did they actually explain what they worked on in a way that made sense and was in context rather than just saying, you know, I worked with the software development life cycle. That's a terrible example, but people still say it on resumes. And then the thing that mattered third and like only a little bit was where they had worked before. So this just led me to write stuff on the internet and just like complain about how bad hiring was. And then uh, candidates started coming to me. A lot of them were non-traditional I'd interview them myself because I had a technical background and had done a lot of interviews. After this, I'd done even more, probably have done a thousand in my career by now. Um, And What I discovered was that the people who did well in interviews were often non-traditional candidates. And then if they did well, I could, when I presented them to one of my clients, I could say, even though this candidate looks kind of weird, at least I know he or she is very, very good because I interviewed them myself. Sometimes companies took this seriously. Sometimes they didn't. But candidates loved it because for them, if they did well, it was um, a way to bolster their candidacy. And if they did poorly, at least they got some practice. And this is what interviewing IO sort of grew out of. These days, what we do is we have a practice platform where if you're a software engineer, no matter who you are, no matter how you look on paper, you can practice technical interviewing anonymously. And when I say practice, I mean you actually have a mock interview with another person on the internet where they run you through an algorithmic interview in a coding environment and talk to you. And you get feedback at the end and then top performers, independently of their resume, get to interview with companies like Uber and Twitter um, and Goldman Sachs and uh, Lyft and others right on our platform, also anonymously And our, our intent is really to make hiring much more efficient. people tend to do well in our interviews with companies because we already know how they do in interviews a lot of about forty percent of our top performers do not look the way you 'd expect them to look on paper.
0: Does Niamh, why don't you give it back a bit of your background how you got into so into recruiting and uh, what inspired you to advise uh, advise startups and then what inspired you to advise uh, interviewing that IO specifically.
2: Thank you, Eric. So I have been in uh, the tech industry now for 15 plus years. I started my career as an engineer and over the years sort of uh, played a part in different roles. So kind of engineering leader, product managers, so different facets of software engineering lifecycle, if you will. I've been managing now small and large teams for about ten, eight, ten 8, 10 years, I would say. On Google, I manage a fairly large team, and, you know, my managers and myself do a good amount of hiring. I've been recruiting, I would say, for engineering candidates and engineering leadership candidates for eight-plus years now. And through my journey of recruiting, a couple things puzzled me. By the way, and I've also been on the receiving end where I have interviewed myself for several companies trying to go find a job, and I've switched companies over over my you know kind of tenure, I've been at Microsoft at Yelp at Uber and now at Google. so I've interviewed at several companies in the valley and outside the valley, as well as been on the recruiting end where I'm recruiting candidates from the industry and what I found is that there is um, mediocrity, if you will on both sides so like Eileen mentioned, it's not about how good the candidate is it's about how they go do in the process and the process is not perfect it's it's trying to procure signals about the candidate based on the candidate performance in the two three four hours of the interview and the interviews oftentimes are are almost sort of trying to capture you know signal around algorithmic and or uh, you know some design technical capability and uh, they're they're trying to judge performance through that 20, 30, 40 minute interview process. Depending on the day, depending on, you know, the candidate's mood on either side, whether it's the candidate or the interviewer, the performance of the candidate can widely sway. And so um, I sort of started to realize that the entire system of interviewing is, you know, quite hit and miss. It's not about how good the candidate is. It's just about how they perform in that moment, and so uh, that was intriguing. and I started doing a lot of self experiments, if you will, and how I could perform better in interviews, and what I realized is how I prep for an interview, how I challenge myself to sort of perform and tell my story in the interview process sort of changes the way how people perceive me. It's not about what or, you know, it's again, it's not about what I've done in the past, how I present my work in the moment is what shifts and changes the perception of the interviewer in the interview process. I also realized that a lot of the interviewers are not really good at what they do. Uh, The interviewers themselves are trying to figure out what or how to judge the interviewee's performance in the process. Uh, But there is no judgment being made on the interviewer themselves. There isn't really a signal that the system provides in terms of how the interviewer performed during the process. Uh, And and that is actually pretty critical because if you think about it, the success and failure of the interviewee or the candidate is going to depend on how good the interviewer is in trying to make the candidate do well during the process. Through that journey, it's basically, uh, you know, being in situations where i felt like good candidates were being rejected by the process it led me to figuring out better ways to get companies to help candidates so uh, the two startups that i do advice is uh, both related to recruiting and interviewing one is uh, interview kickstarter which basically helps prep candidates and that's the preparation phase and then um, the reason why i joined alien startup also interviewing.io is because it helps the candidate prep. So one side is about candidate preparation, get them performing better in the interview process, especially the technical interviews. And then the other side of it is providing interviewers more signal on how to get better with interviewing skills. Because it's, it's not a slam dunk. It comes with practice and it comes with feedback. And getting feedback from an interviewee during the interview process is pretty much gold if I'm trying to become a good interviewer. So that's what led me uh, to work with Aileen, and over the years, we've, uh, we've sort of experimented quite a bit, actually, on the platform, and found ways to help both the interviewer and interviewer side of the equation, and making the process better over time.
0: Awesome. Aileen, why don't you talk a little bit about the evolution with interviewing data and Slash, how the idea has evolved over time, or the offering has evolved, or, or uh, how it's different from when you started
1: In the process of answering that, I'll also talk about an experiment that Taz kind of kicked off and inspired us to do. (laughs) We can all talk about that one. Um, So initially, uh, when I first started this company, I put up a really crappy marketing site on Hacker News that said something like, get free anonymous technical interview practice with engineers from top companies. And uh, it was top of Hacker News for like two days. I think we had like 7,000 people sign up in the first day. It was insane. Um, And for the first little while, all we did once we established that this is something, and one of the doubts we have is, like, our senior engineers are actually going to want to use this. Um, generally, our customers push back on this, too, and they're like, you know, is this just for very junior people? In fact, uh, uh, many of the people that signed up were senior. So once we proved that out, our next goal was to uh, build a seamless, anonymous interviewing environment, right? Normally, um, if you use standard interviewing tools, you can't be anonymous because if you're using Google Hangouts or a phone, Um, that reveals your identity either implicitly or explicitly. So we we ended up having to sort of build a matching system and figure out how to do audio uh, anonymously and all this other stuff so for the first little while while we were getting the kinks out and, and figuring out not just the technical part which you know was mostly stapling a bunch of pre-existing tools together but also the um, social dynamics of anonymous interviewing like what works what doesn't is it weird if you just match with a rando on the internet and start talking um, what what should we advise people to do how, how are they going to get the most signal out of the time they spend together so we, d- we uh, did just Peer to peer, probably for the first I don't know six months to a year that we were in business, uh, sort of figuring out how that worked and also collecting a bunch of interview data in the process. Then we started slowly letting on employers because ultimately the way you can monetize this stuff is through companies. If you ask candidates to pay, they're going to leave, or at least the best ones will, because of um, some adverse selection. Right, the the people that you want using your platform are generally people that don't really need you. So like in this market, if you build a product for Software engineers that has anything to do with jobs, they're not going to care. Anybody can, like most, most people that look good on paper can get a job. The ones that can't, it's harder for them, but you can't just build a business around diamonds in the rough. So we had to um, slowly start letting on employers, but we, um, we knew we had to monetize for employers and not through charging candidates. Initially, everybody was in this one big pool. So uh, it was kind of like Ender's Game, <laughs> where if you're a candidate or just somebody practicing interviews... You could match with a practice interviewer who was also trying to get better at giving technical interviews, or you might match with an employer who was willing to give their time to help people get better in exchange for the possibility of talking to a smart person who'd want to work for them. Um, That worked okay. Smaller brands liked it because if nobody had heard of them, they were willing to put the time in. And the reason I, I said it was like Ender's Game is because uh, basically an interview was practice until, and sorry about the spoilers, until like all of a sudden it's not like, shit, this was a real interview. But because it was anonymous, it was only a real interview if you did well. Small, like I said, smaller employers like this because it gave their brand some exposure and they got a chance to sell to candidates they maybe would not have had a chance to sell to otherwise. But larger companies didn't like this because they were using to leaning on the power of their brand and masking the brand and having completely double-blind interactions sort of put them at a disadvantage. So we ended up splitting things up and uh, now we have a practice pool where people can practice with interviewers who are trying out new questions. We also have freelancers whom we pay to do interviews and you know, it's, it's a mixed bag of why people are there. Um, some employers like, like Taz are forward-thinking and really want to get better at interviewing people and we have some of those as well who use us for interviewer training. Real companies that are just actively hiring and not looking for your training are not in this pool. They're in a separate pool where only top performers can engage. Once you're a top performer in practice, you see a list of companies and you can just grab a time slot with any of the companies we work with and then do an interview with them. And that one is single blind where the candidate knows which company it is, but the company knows nothing about the candidate except they're a top performer. And then at the end of that interview, if the company likes the candidate, then uh, the candidate unmasks and then their info goes to the company's ATS and they'll hopefully onsite them as soon as possible. One of the other cool things I promised to talk about this, and, and Taz, please jump in. Is that this was is, this is kind of, you're, you're the one that, that uh, was a forcing function for us doing this. One of the cool things that we did and part of the evolution of the product was us building real-time voice masking. So back when uh, Taz was working at Yelp, uh, we were sort of trying this out together. And Paz, why don't you jump in? I, I, I don't want to tell your part of the story wrong.
2: No, no, no worries. I think it was when we were at Yelp and Eileen and I got introduced and we, when I started to learn about the platform a little more, I was at the time trying to figure out bias in the interview process. And this was not specific to Yelp in any way. It was basically just uh, my curiosity in trying to discover where the biases exist in the entire pipeline. and. Part of the bias comes from, of course, uh, top of funnel, right? Which is basically where or how are you sourcing candidates into the funnel. And this is no probably no surprise to most, but a lot of source candidates oftentimes are also referral candidates. So your your pipeline ends up being biased by your organization and who they're referring. And that it actually introduces a good amount of, you know, kind of Either diversity or lack thereof, if you will, depending on your referred candidates into the pipeline. The other part that we were curious about uh, was bias in the pipeline of interviewing itself. Uh, Do different interviewers, if you will, bias differently for different candidates? And this may be gender or race or cultural diversity of any kind. We were curious if interviewers somehow judged candidates differently based on factors other than their performance in the interview. And so the experiment with Aileen and I, and uh, hopefully I'm remembering correctly, Alien, so please uh, jump in as well. Uh, the experiment we tried to do was trying to mask voice so that you couldn't tell gender apart. Um, and we, we, we did it a bunch of different ways. We sort of tried to neutralize the voice, if you will, uh, both male and female uh, voices into a neutral voice tone. We also tried to swap, I think, uh, male and female, just to kind of see if that was introducing any bias in the signal for candidates for interviewers trying to judge candidates. And for for what it's worth, at least for the small experimental base that we were we were targeting in the interviews that we did, we did not see. And correct me if I I'm wrong, Alien, but we did not see at least a bias because of gender uh, in the interviewer candidates. And this is, again, just caveat, this is a smaller population that we were looking yeah, at. That's but, right. Yeah, uh, which uh, which was actually, at least in our case, was very rewarding because that made us feel good that on our pipeline, we were not biasing candidates out just because of uh, the tone of voice. So oftentimes you hear a female, they have a sharper voice tone an and or even a different style of presenting themselves, and we were worried that that kind of screened people out, if you will, in in the interview process. And this was this gave us a very good platform to be able to ensure that within our environment we were not necessarily biasing against uh, female candidates. So that was uh, that was again part of it. I think in general, the advice that I normally give to companies and since then, you know, when I'm at Yelp or Uber or Google, the one thing that I try to uh, judge for and look for is, you know, based on your funnel data just kind of doing some level of you know understanding and analysis of where those biases could exist because you can't solve every problem depending on the tech company you are and the budgets you have and in the in the surface area you have you cannot solve every problem but if you know where these biases exist then you can target that bias and and, and plan to mitigate it right it could be that your funnel itself your top of funnel is biased heavily towards referred candidates, and referred candidates tend to be of a certain, you know, certain type of diversity depending on your your pool of candidates within the company itself. That could be just the source. In that case, you need to be sourcing differently. And funnily enough, companies like Interviewing I.O. actually help with the sourcing problem because you're not necessarily biased towards your own sourcing pipelines and you're opening up the doors to Uh, You know, kind of any candidate across anywhere in the globe, and you're able to find the right candidate based on the position that you have in mind. Uh, But oftentimes, the, the bias can even be introduced in the pipeline. It could be that certain interviewers are biased, it could be that your process is, if you're asking a certain category of questions, they're not performing as well, if you will, because certain Candidates that are coming to you may senior candidates and you may be asking, you know, purely algorithmic questions and they may be looking for design questions could be any number of dimensions in terms of how your bias might exist. And so you might be able to fine tune the interview process to suit candidates better. So you're not weeding them out uh, necessarily for for lack of good reason.
1: I would argue that, like, the most problematic bias is probably at the very top of the funnel just by virtue of it being shaped like a funnel and that being the most number of people that that get affected. Not, you know, certainly I I believe interviewers are are imperfect. Our interview process is imperfect and there is bias at all stages of the funnel. But for for us, like, the problem that we think where we can make the most impact is is the top. Um, One of the things that, like, (laughs) just the crazy things we've seen is Uh, Routinely our candidates will apply to a company for whom we hire without us So they'll just go in through the front door apply inbound. Maybe, you know, they'll they'll get in some other way And then uh, they won't end up getting an interview because of how they look on paper Then they come to interviewing.io do a few practice interviews excel Choose that company book a time slot with them kick ass in that interview go all the way to on-site get hired and then, you know, uh, it, it forces this existential conversation within that company because they had previously turned that candidate away based on their their pedigree. And now they, they ended up getting hired when they when they got the chance to show what they can do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is, uh, you hit the nail on the head, right? I, mean, I think what happens is when you're getting thousands and thousands of resumes, uh, you, ha- you use some mechanism to screen. And if you're looking yeah, at after- a resume to screen, yeah, you're going to look at, certain dimensions within the resume, the school or the companies, they, the school the candidate went to or the companies that they worked at previously and or some, you know, kind of language within the resume, like, like we talked about before, where they may be using certain phrases in the resume or, or you know, kind of skills that they have excelled at before and it becomes a pattern-matched problem. And so when you are judging a person based on a pattern match and a resume, there's a lot of noise in that signal. You're bound to
1: exclude candidates too early in the pipeline than they need to be. Yeah, it's, you got to do something, right, if, if, if that's how you hire. And there's really, I mean, there, there, are, there are newer and newer players in the space now. I mean, we're one of them. There are others that are trying to kill their resume entirely and come up with a new kind of credential that, that's based on ability. And I'm, I'm excited it's happening because I, I think people, yeah, like everyone's doing their best. Um, everybody wants to make good decisions, and you have to manage trade-offs and, and you know, make decisions quickly. But, yeah, I think, I think the way things, things are done now could use a lot of improvement even though everybody's doing their best.
0: There's a couple things I re- I really, uh, I'm really intrigued. Uh, one is I-, I love the idea generally of I'm going to, you know, play this, you know, this, do this, you know, uh, application or do this interview. And if I if I crush it, people can see it. But if not, there's no pressure. And that just applied elsewhere, I think, is, is just an interesting concept as a way to sort of uh, lower the barriers of people getting involved in, in different activities. But more broadly, uh, on credentialing, I want to hear you guys or I hear you sort of uh, uh, expound on, what you think the future there might look like? Because people work, you know, work pretty hard to get credentials, you know, and, and, and sometimes it, it, if they're designed well can be uh you know, a way to assess out, you know, long-term, not just how you perform in one interview, but how you perform over long periods of time. Yeah.
1: How- oh, I have so many thoughts. Taz, just jump in whenever I'm just going to go off. <laughs> um, so, uh, the way we, we've we traditionally credentialed people in computer science used to work okay. I remember when I was in school, I think, and, and I hope I'm not lying here, as I recall, like, Oracle would come in and, like, give offers to, like, the top X percent of MIT's computer graduating computer science class, right? And that, that kind of worked. It doesn't really work these days um, for, for a number of reasons. One is how people are getting into computer science is changing. So if you look at the number of people that are enrolling in traditional computer science programs every year. It's growing linearly. If you look at people enrolling in alternative programs, things like Lambda School or, or boot camps or, or uh, MOOCs uh, like Udacity where I used to work, or Coursera, um, that is growing exponentially. So, you know, in maybe in my opinion, in like five years, the landscape is going to look completely differently as it is when uh, companies try to hire people these days most of the candidates that they talk to are not applying, you know, or, or they're, they're just not looking at that channel as much. Uh, Taz mentioned earlier, there are so many people that are applying, you've got to make decisions quickly, uh, you have to pattern match, and, and uh, companies just tend not to spend that much time on that channel. Rather, what companies do spend a lot of time on is sort of going out into the world and sourcing, which means that there are people whose job it is to reach out to engineers on LinkedIn or over email, right, and, and say, hey, you should totally come work for our company. Um, what ends up happening is that uh, people who did go to schools like MIT or Stanford or people who have worked at companies like Google or Facebook end up getting hit up disproportionately often for every company uh, it, there's really there's no arbitrage opportunity at all right like you're all chasing the same 10 candidates and getting a candidate to respond takes uh, each sourcer about 10 hours according to our numbers by the you know you get somebody finally in the door, then they talk to a recruiter, then they do a tech screen, and most people fail the tech screen because you're going by proxies, uh, like where they went to school and, and how they um, how they worked before rather than you know something more meaningful. It takes about 60 hours of engine recruiting time just to get to one on site and somewhere between uh, 120 and 200 hours to actually make a higher engine recruiting time cost about the same. And this is just getting more and more noisy as the the way people look on paper is changing and as companies persist in continuing to reach out to the same 10 people. So I think we're, we're approaching a, a credentialing crisis.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think just to build on that, right. I mean, I think part of the issue is that we keep sort of, growing the need for hiring software engineers if you look at the tech industry it's it's not, it's, it, it's in a massively you know, growth phase right so you're going to always need more of your, your supply if you will is always going to be more limited than the demand. now to your point Alien, if you end up in a situation where you're only going by the credentials then of course the cream of the crop is going to have disproportionately more options but they're also going to pick the best offer available to them at the time, which means that companies that cannot make the best offer for whatever reason are always going to be in a crisis of getting the right candidate through the door. But that doesn't necessarily mean, I would argue, that there isn't a candidate pool available out there. I mean, again, I'm not trying to judge supply and demand here because it's hard to judge that, but the assumption that I don't have the right candidate to hire for my role and so I should keep the role open for six months, which actually does happen in certain cases, seems kind of bizarre to me, right? So the fundamental challenge that I'm seeing is that we aren't able to actually do a good job matching supply with our demand Uh, and we assume that there is limited supply, but as the non-traditional, you know, it's like, okay, you may not be going to play Harvard or the MIT, but if you're going to, you know, kind of a, uh, a school, you know, in a different part of the U.S. and or even going, getting a degree through Coursera or Audacity, you may still be a solid engineer if you have the right attitude, have the right profile, have the right instinct to solve problems. And that doesn't necessarily just come from education. In a grade A school, but it could come from other means as well. It has a lot to do with the candidate themselves. Now, if they do have the desire to self learn and self teach, the tools that exist today are a lot more than the tools that existed maybe ten years ago. When I, you know, when you know, I, I was I was going to colleges looking at candidates. We didn't have the Coursera's and the Udacity's or any of the bootcamps out there. It was only college education. Now, since there are a lot more tools for people to get, get those degrees or get that education or get that skill set, the type of supply has evolved and changed, right? Oh, and, yeah,
1: that's so true.
2: <laughs> right? And, and And the other part of it that I also sort of find puzzling sometimes is like, we tend to over-index on hard skills when hiring candidates rather than the balance between hard skills and soft skills. And I think we all know that as a candidate mature, as a, an engineer matures in a company after the first two or three years at the company, just the hard skills are not necessarily gonna be enough in them being able to perform at their job, right? So when you are interviewing only for a certain type of profile, oh, they can solve these N algorithmic or N data structure problems. You may be hiring a good candidate for the first few years, but they may not do well in the long haul, right? So that that's sort of the interesting conundrum. It's like, how do you ensure that one, you're being more open to a different supply, uh, you know, kind of different set pool of candidates that may imp- increase your supply, but also think about how you're judging the performance of the candidate itself through your process. And I don't know if I have figured out the great way to do that, but uh, I don't even think that companies have uh, a good way to judge that in through the interview process that we follow.
1: yeah, i am um, I have a bit of data kind of supporting what Taz said, so for a while at interviewing i o we were we ran a university hiring program where we were trying to effectively kill career fairs. We ended up sunsetting it because we couldn't make the unit economics work. like companies were very invested in career fairs and also like. The companies that hire a lot of students tend to have a very set budget and they know that even if they just spend it all on career fairs, they're going to get the headcount that they need even if it's not like as diverse as they want or um, even if it's not as efficient as they want. So just less of a hair on fire problem. But that aside, for a while we were onboarding university students like crazy and we were onboarding them from all over the U.S. completely independently of where people went to school. And of course we noted where people went to school and then later... We uh, looked to see how they performed in practice interviews. And what we discovered is that there was just not that much difference in performance between students in very elite schools, you know, CMU and Stanford and MIT and, and Caltech and others, versus, you know, top-tier state schools and even middle-tier state schools. It was just not different. Now, one of, uh, I think this, this speaks to a test said earlier. She's like, it's not just about the knowledge the candidate has, but some of their character. And I I think that we ended up with a bit of a self-selected group where the students that wanted to practice on interviewing IO were a little more gritty, right? And and were a little more driven and had more initiative than others. But if you can find a way to correct for that, then where people go to school just doesn't have bearing on on how they, they perform, at least in technical interviews. Whether those interviews predict how they do on the job, completely separate issue. One other thing we looked at, too, was what attributes generally made people perform better in interviews? And uh, the thing that mattered most was whether people had taken a bunch of classes on Udacity or Coursera. And Udacity or Coursera did not pay me to say this, but that, that's true. And again, I think it just speaks to a certain amount of grit, right? If people are willing to take the initiative and self-learn and round out their education, even if they didn't go to a top school, it just generally speaks to a better engineer than, than somebody that just coasted at, at a top school.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of the other part of it, which is, you know, I think you made this point, Aileen, is performance in an interview is not necessarily predictive of performance in the job. And that's an interesting point as well, which is the interview process is not foolproof. And it will never be foolproof. But most companies try to err on the side of precision rather than recall. And so you end up screening candidates out based on that signal that you get in an interview, even though they may be perfectly great candidates for the job. And you have the opposite problem as well, which is, you know, you do all the screening possible and judge for that perfect candidate to come join you, but then they may not end up being that perfect. And, you know, that delta, it would be really, really hard to close the delta between interview performance and job performance. Just realistically, it's going to be hard unless you completely flip the process entirely, you know, by some sort of an apprenticeship program of sorts, if you will, right? Where the performance is judged by the work you do, not necessarily by the two, three, five hour of interview <laughs> interviews that you take as a candidate. So that's another, you know, just... I've always had, which is what if the world, what if the tech industry judged performance differently, right? Just performance of interviews and performance on the job differently.
1: I mean, that would be the holy grail, right? Like closing that loop, going all the way from somebody's candidacy to not only whether they get an offer and ultimately get hired, but then seeing longitudinally how well they do in that specific job. I would love to do that one day. We're trying to collect all the data right now. So we'll actually be able to say something cogent about this down the line. Like that, that to me would be like the biggest achievement in this space. If
0: somebody could actually nail that, maybe it'll be
1: mm-hmm. us, maybe someone else. Agreed. Yeah.
0: So zooming out for a bit, Aileen, could you start maybe give sort of a, a picture of how you slice the, the markets? Cause you've been thinking about startups in this space for, for a while. Just how you slice up the recruiting space in terms of, different opportunities where, where startups can can play. And I guess I'm curious in the question for both of you, if, if you weren't running interviewing.io, uh, but wanted to build a different company in this space, where might you experiment or explore?
1: So when we fundraised in the past, I generally talked about the competitor axes, right? Um, and of course, we've chosen these axes favorably, so we can stick ourselves in the top right, because that's what you do. But the, I think the, these axes exist for a reason. So I'll, I'll talk about the space sort of through this lens. I think there there are two things that really matter when you're building a company in the recruiting space. One is, and I, I touched on this a bit earlier, is can you give the best candidates something that uh, they can't get anywhere else? So If you, again, if you go to the best people and you say, I can help you get a job, they're going to be like, I don't give a shit. I can get a job without your recruiters are hitting me up left and right. And uh, I have friends that work at all these companies. That's not to say those are the only candidates and it would be hypocritical of me to operate on that because we believe that talent is distributed uniformly it's just that you can't make a whole business around diamonds and rough i think you have to build a product that even the best people need and then everybody else needs to and by best i mean best on paper not necessarily like actual best so for us um that has been giving people free anonymous mock interviews with senior engineers from top companies. Over 6,000 candidates sign up or interviewing I.O. every month as a result. It's because we're giving people something that they need and can't get anywhere else because technical interviewing is scary. It was scary for me when I was a candidate you know, Taz mentioned, like, she, she's been through the ringer as well. And it, it's not great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just not the stuff you do every day. So other, other players have, have done this in the past well, too. So Hired, when they first started out, had this very brilliant thing where if you created an account and you just signed uh, connected your LinkedIn you'd start getting offers. Now, these were quote-unquote offers in the, you know, they weren't real job offers yet uh, because you hadn't interviewed, uh, but companies would at least be telling you, if you come work with us before we even meet you, this is how much we'd be willing to pay you per year. If you're smart as a candidate, even if you never used hired for your job search, you could take all of these offers that were coming in, take the average, And then use that as leverage when you go to your current employer. So you could say, look, I can go talk to all of these companies and the data says that I'm 20% underpaid. So either you can give me a raise or I'm going to go start interviewing. So they, they effectively provided some transparency into the salary market, which is completely obfuscated and, and nasty and nobody really knows what's going on. Um, these days, I don't think they, they really, they've moved away from the auction model uh, for a number of reasons. But back in the day, like that was a really compelling value add for candidates that didn't need help finding a job. Like something like HackerRank, uh, as far as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, either of you, um, they've kind of moved away. When they first started, they were doing a lot of hiring type stuff. Uh, where, you know, they had these coding challenges people could do, and if you did well in the coding challenges, you could be connected to a company. But I think they ran into some adverse selection because senior engineers that don't need help finding a job are probably not going to spend hours and hours on random coding challenges. So I think they ended up with a lot of junior candidates or candidates that didn't look good on paper or candidates from outside the U.S. And that's, that's not enough to, I think, build a sustainable hiring model. So they've since pivoted away to doing more enterprise tools. So that's that's one axis. Then the second axis is this notion of scalability. So another way to look at that is, are you running a recruiting agency? So a lot of companies in the space today have some clever top of funnel stuff where they'll, they'll get candidates in the door somehow. But then once a candidate is actually in the door, it is up to humans to talk to that candidate and effectively figure out where that candidate wants to work, try to assess maybe whether that candidate is good, and then actually connect that candidate to companies. And uh, the reason this matters is because a lot of players in the space get paid on contingency, which means you get paid when you make a hire. So companies call these these employees talent managers or talent advocates uh, or any other number of names. They're careful not to call them recruiters, because that makes them sound like a recruiting firm. But at the end of the day, if there are people whose job it is to talk to candidates and then make placements, you're a recruiting agency, even if you're iteratively more efficient or, you know, run by people with more domain expertise. I, I don't think that that model is very interesting. And I think that then you end up scaling linearly with the number of talent star, whatever it is you call them, uh, that, that you have on, on staff. We like to do things differently. We also, when we get paid, we don't typically get paid for hire, we just get paid for candidate flow, sort of aligns things better. I, I think that those, those two things really, really matter. Basically, any tool that claims to just do some kind of candidate vetting without giving candidates value is probably not going to do very well, at least not in engineering. In other markets, that's not true, because it's all about supply and demand. And a lot of players in the space, I think, are set up to be recruiting agencies, which makes for a lucrative business, but does not necessarily make for a very good venture-backed business over time.
2: You know, I think at the end of the day, you want to make sure there's two sides to this equation, right? There's the candidate who should get some value because they need to use your product. And then there is the company that's hiring the candidate. They need to want to work with you. So they need to get some value through the candidate. It could be that they're predominantly getting better candidates through your pipeline because of whatever your, whatever value you're adding to your product. And I think that's what I've seen with at least a few startups that I have observed and or even the ones that I'm advising. The reason why it works is because the value being provided to the candidate makes the candidate more viable to the company sourcing the candidate. And so that creates sort of this nice chain reaction where more candidates are willing to participate, even if it means they, in some cases, they may have to pay in or opt in. in Aileen's model, you know, in interviewing.io, the candidate doesn't pay. But even if the candidate were to pay, as long as they're generating value enough so that it creates a more sustainable desire for companies to be able to use the startup, use the, use the sort of channel, if you will, to offer the candidate, you know, could kind have of offer the candidate to their pipeline. I think that's in my mind what what creates sort of the the chain reaction. Otherwise, it's going to some somehow or the other, it's going to fade away if both parties don't get the the value prop.
0: So, I want to dig in on a few of those points. One of them is the uh, recruiting firm. So, some of the recruiting firms are, or maybe one or two of them are over a billion-dollar company. Is that, is that correct, Alien? And w- w- my question is, could there be like an, what Atrium has done for law firms, could there be like that for a recruiting research firm?
1: I think it depends on – so I don't know of any recruiting firms that are billion-dollar businesses within engineering recruiting. I, I'd be uh, – if, if I'm wrong about that, please tell me. But I think in other verticals, that's possible because of the supply-demand disparity, right? So if you have a shortage of jobs and a surplus of labor, right – and a company's biggest challenge is just, like, vetting all of their inbound, then it, it greatly changes the dynamic. There are also recruiting firms that probably specialize in very niche roles, um, which, you know, I, I don't know how that would build a billion-dollar business, but it's, it's possible. Um, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd have to know a little more about which ones you had in mind, but uh, for me, I generally think about, like, what is the hardest thing in this space? Is it, is it vetting, or is it, like, attracting people, or is it, you know, that there's some kind of... Uh, a uh, credentialing problem.
0: Atrium is a uh, tech-enabled law firm that Justin Kahn, former founder of Twitch and Justin, mm-hmm. is this founder CEO of, and uh, they're trying to take the business of Gunderson and Cooley mm-hmm. by creating a much better brand and and you know create, uh, replace some pro- or make some processes better with technology is the is his thesis.
2: I think theoretically, right, Aileen, it could be possible. I think at the end of the day, it's really about matching the right supply with the right demand. So in theory, you could say it is possible. Now, LinkedIn is not a recruiting firm per se, but it kind of acts like it, right? So companies can actually create a recruiting profile within LinkedIn and, and and search for candidates on LinkedIn. So in theory, I would say, yeah, absolutely, it's possible as long as you find an ability to match the right supply with the right, and especially for, again, like you said, executive positions, where the pool itself is smaller, but the ability to close that position uh, means a lot to the company. So if you find the right candidate for them, it means a lot to the company and to the candidate
1: because the stakes are higher. So I guess uh, with LinkedIn, it's, it's it's interesting. LinkedIn is, I guess, not a recruiting agency because the way LinkedIn monetizes, I think, like, most of their revenue comes from subscriptions to LinkedIn recruiter, right? So I would say that LinkedIn that's is... That's right, that's right. Yeah, so it's like a data source. I think if LinkedIn tried to monetize by making placements, they probably would not make very much money because I don't think LinkedIn recruiter is a very effective way of, of sourcing engineering talent. There are, cer- there are certainly ways to build businesses in this space with a ton of revenue, right? But like LinkedIn's secret sauce is the network effects and, and the stickiness, um, not necessarily their, their placements. So, yeah, I, I guess I, I wouldn't compare them to a recruiting firm because their, their core value is not, like, sourcing candidates. It's having this, this tool that, that, that you can use to, like, find information. With, with Atrium, I, I, I can't speak too much to them because I just found out who they are, but I think it also depends on, like, how much of the job you can automate, right? If Atrium doesn't need to hire a bunch of lawyers to do lawyer things and they've done, uh, created a tech-enabled law firm, by virtue of, of using technology to automate away what were traditionally human jobs, then hell yeah, of course it's possible, right? It's just that every player in the space that I've seen that focuses on sourcing candidates for companies, except us and maybe I don't know, maybe there, there are others, but tend to uh, hire recruiters to do the same exact thing that a recruiter would do. It's just that they're tech enabled at the top of the funnel in some way, or maybe they've added a little bit of vetting, but at the end of the day, they're hiring just as many recruiters as a traditional recruiting firm would do, or maybe like half, but it still ends up being um, uh, set up where you're scaling linearly with the number of that staff.
0: So what's it going to take for LinkedIn to be disrupted? I mean, five years from now, 10 years from now, is LinkedIn going to be, as big talk a little bit about how it's been powerful you know powerful for so long and what's it going to take for there to be some change there
1: yeah uh well linkedin knows i think it's it's a an extremely innovative platform it was when they started right um and the the, the network effects they have had have been startling like that's amazing they, they have such a huge win with that but at the end of the day linkedin knows everything about everybody except whether they're actually good at their jobs and that that to me is going to be the thing that that needs to be disrupted. If you look at, at Hired, right, they recently bought Pi. I think the reason they bought Pi assessments is because they're also trying to close that loop, right? They realize that traditional credentialing doesn't work and you need to know if your candidates are good in order to do your job more effectively. And I think that's, that's the future of, of recruiting startups is, is not just having a database of candidates that one can search, but actually adding some kind of uh, supplementary info about whether they're good coders.
2: I mean, I think the interesting thing, if I put myself in terms of how I use LinkedIn, when I see candidates coming through the pipeline, uh, this may not be true for everybody, but the way I use LinkedIn is not necessarily to look at what school they went to or where they worked at before, which is a signal, but not the default signal. I usually look for, which is also irony, I look for the people they work with mm-hmm. and how they connect with my network, right? Because what I'm really looking for is if that Person that I know and I trust can give me a signal on the candidate about how they're performing at their job or how they performed at their job. So it's really at the end of the day, I'm using the references that are common between so either second degree or, or first degree commonality to determine how good the candidate is. And that's sort of an interesting, you know, kind of uh, play, if you will. It's like LinkedIn alone doesn't allow me to judge whether I should reach out to the candidate, but through the reference I can.
0: So a very real scenario. So right now I started this community a few years ago called OnDeck, which is a community for people looking to start or join their next company. And it's a few thousand people. And we're actually looking to build talent business on top of it that leverages leverages it. And two ideas I'm sort of playing with that I think someone, if not us, could build an interesting space. One is sort of like a page rank for talent. And to exactly, trying to solve exactly the problem that you, you mentioned, Aileen. And I'm curious if you can give uh, your impressions of companies that you've seen in the past or approaches that tried to do this, whether it's, I think there was one that used to stack rank people against each other or others that were around awards. I mean, there have been like all sorts of different game mechanics. Uh, you know, could you imagine sort of a glass door for people, but it's like positive? And I don't know. I mean, what sort of solution do you think will work in this vein?
1: a great question. I don't think it'll work for, for a few reasons. I don't think you can determine if engin- and, and again, this is purely for engineering in different verticals might work. Uh, the reason I don't think it'll work in engineering is because you need proprietary data to tell if people are good. There just isn't enough information available in the public sphere to make these determinations. The strongest thing you can look at and, and has talked about this a bit is the connections between people and there have been startups that have tried to do that where they'll look to see you know, who's contributing to some open source project, and then like how many Twitter followers people have who are high profile and who they're connected to on LinkedIn. At the end of the day, those signals are extremely noisy, especially on LinkedIn, because now everyone's like connected to everybody else. But there are plenty of engineers that just don't have public presences. And even if they do like scraping the code they wrote um, on some public project in GitHub is probably not going to give you that much signal and it's hard to scale up and do well there used to be things like uh, you could give your coworkers awards, right? Or, or, Or give them badges or, you know, do it publicly. I think there was a thing called coder wall years ago that tried to do something like this. Generally, engineers have no incentive to do this, right? They know it's for hiring and then you give somebody an award and then all of a sudden recruiters are after that person and you feel like a jerk, right? Like there's no value that you get out of it. In order to get engineers to do something that, that uh, messes with their social network and like compromises their social status in some way is, is, is really difficult. People have also tried to overcome this problem with money where, you know, you can create a startup where you refer your friends to different jobs. But unless you're going to be giving people huge, huge fees, it's not worth it because if it's not the company where you work, why would you give your friend's name to somebody else unless you're really hurting for money, but engineers aren't. So the unit economics on those things just tend to not work if you're trying to get people to, to submit information. I think the only way to get data about people is to get people to give it to themselves because you're giving them value.
0: Totally. You know, best jobs come from referrals often, tools that empower people to refer. So... Basically, the idea is that, you know, often people will come to, candidates will come to me and say, hey, what are the best companies that I should be looking to join? And I'll sort of say, oh, who did I last speak with? Who's top of mind? And, and similarly, companies will come to me and say, hey, who's the best product manager or head of, you know, uh, operations in, in your network that we should be looking to poach? And I'll say, oh, who's top of mind? And could you create almost like a marketplace around each individual's network? So almost like what Angelus syndicates did to empower people to become investors people who had good deal flow but didn't have any access to uh lps or, or any infrastructure for people who have networks could you give them tools to manage their networks better almost like a you know filter and search like oh who are the product managers i know etc but then also give them the infrastructure to actually become recruiters and almost to create a three-sided marketplace where they can make money from and I, I, you know, I as a VC wouldn't want to do it. I just want to help people out and lots of other people would just want to help people out, but other people, if they can make extra income from making successful matches, could that be interesting? And the idea is what product they've empowered people to become journalists effectively, because before product on only people who could post articles on TechCrunch could get serious traffic, but now, you know, orders of magnitude, more people can bring similar traffic to startups. Could you similarly empower more people to have the tools that recruiters have?
1: It's a great question. I think journalism is, it's, it's hard to draw that analogy precisely because of the supply-demand difference, right? Like in this market for journalists, especially what well, just happened at BuzzFeed, I think it's kind of indicative of what's happening everywhere. Like there's a surplus of journalists and a shortage of jobs. And that fundamentally changes the incentive for everybody, right? When you're in a situation where there's a shortage of talent and a surplus of jobs, people behave differently. I think some people like you are trying to do the right thing and are really incentivized to help people but in part, like, Eric, you're a connector. Like, that, this is a lot of what you do. So you'd probably do this anyway. People don't always want to do this anyway. And if they're not going to do this anyway, you have to sort of find the dollar value that's going to make them change their behavior. And I think if you look at the size of an average engineer's network and their willingness to sell their network, you'll find that you're going to hit a wall unless you give them a shit ton of cash. And at that point, like you might as well just pay tools or other recruiters. I, I guess like engineers also know how much recruiters make and most engineers don't want to do it because that's just not the job they want. So it's, and by the way, like recruiters make a lot of money. It's like what, 20 to 25% of them its first year salary per placement. Um, so I think you, you'd have to, making the unit economics on this uh, work, I think would be very, very difficult. And um, I haven't seen anything be super successful. The one exception is a tool called Teamable, which is a SaaS tool that companies can use to sort of plug in their employees' networks and then have those employees refer those people as part of their job to their own employer. And I, I think they're, they're doing decently well, but uh, you know, the, the, it's a SaaS tool and, and companies are willing to use it. Uh, it's, it's very different than, than paying placement fees.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the only way I can, the idea of connection is interesting, right? I mean, to Eric's point, uh, uh, Eric's a connector, like I get these requests quite often of connecting within, connecting people within my network. I think if you somehow found a way to make it kind of like a professional network like LinkedIn started, like LinkedIn, I don't know if LinkedIn started with the idea of making recruiters happy by providing them the data. I don't know if that was the premise in which uh, LinkedIn started. So if you're able to start with the premise of connecting people and making it easy for people to connect based on not just the what, but the how, not just who they are, but how, how they are at, at at a particular job, there could be something there. But Kind of analogous to recruitment firms. I don't really know if you can turn that into like a recruiting recruitment firm. Like each of each of us becomes...
0: yeah, less less like recruiting firm the
2: like a in the process one. exactly yeah, like
0: yeah. for, but uh, like what Angelus did for investing. Angelus doesn't invest directly, but they create a marketplace for other people.
1: Right. Well, Angelus gives yeah. you such a compelling reason to do it, right? Like you can make a lot of money as an angel investor, and they're like this is stuff you'd be doing anyway, right? They're just removing the hassle. Whereas people, I think, would, this is not a behavior that engineers would be doing anyway. And the, the upside for them is a lot smaller than, you know, having a great portfolio of angel investments because you have access to syndicates you wouldn't have had before, right? It's, it's, it's a very different set of incentives.
0: Right. So, so you were dubious on the uh, desire for, to, for people to have their referring power increased or, or yeah
1: unless yeah i think that like the 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 activation energy to get people to do it for opportunities like people will refer people to their own employer right because then you know they when you're telling somebody to work at your company presumably you're happy there right and you're not going to put a friend in a bad situation you're not going to refer your friends to opportunities you know nothing about Because then it's your reputation, right? And how much are you willing to get paid to to sort of subvert that? It would probably have to be a lot. Then the argument is, well, what if they don't refer their friends to whom they feel they owe something, but just people that they don't have a relationship with? But at that point, you lose any of that special sauce uh, where, where they know a lot about the person. I don't know. I, this sounds to me like if it were going to work, this is a feature that LinkedIn would be very well positioned to build precisely because they know what everyone's social graph looks like. Uh, and and they, they haven't. And uh, I, I suspect they haven't because it's a lot harder than it sounds. Totally.
0: Uh, as many things are. Um, I want to be sensitive to, to both your time. It's been a fantastic deep dive into, into recruiting. Where can people learn more about interviewing.io and, and you just, you, both of your work in general?
1: Fortunately, our name is also a URL. <laughs> One of the few things I maybe did right as a founder. <laughs> so just please go to interviewing.io. We are, I think, the most efficient way to hire software engineers. For many of our companies, we're actually a better source than internal referrals because we know how people do in interviews and can therefore predict very well how they're going to do in future interviews and and, uh, and beyond. So please go to our site. And also our blog is pretty cool. We share a lot of data. Some of it I talked about in this podcast. You can read about what happens when you make women sound like men and men sound like women and uh, how important pedigree is when it comes to interview performance and stuff like that.
2: I think the last thing I'll say is, I mean, I'm not super hard to find on, on LinkedIn. Tasneem Minadakis was not a very... A popular name. <laughs> um, I, I think there's just one of me on LinkedIn, so that that makes me feel special. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice.
2: <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I'd say this field or this area is actually ripe with opportunity. Uh, there's interesting sort of challenge and we talked about this. It's just it's about the sourcing. It's about the funnel. It's about connecting how people do an interview process with how they perform on the job. And, you know, I'm always looking for and curious to see what what brilliant ideas people come up with to plug the hole because there's definitely opportunity. And someone like me is always looking to hire hire good people uh, into the companies I work at and do that uh, with minimal amount of friction. And so if there are companies out there and startups out there that come up with brilliant ideas to be able to do so, I'm sure there'll be people like me always be willing to talk to them about it.
1: I'll also throw in a plug for for Taz. If you are looking for a job when you're an engineer, she's probably the kindest, most empathetic, thoughtful, and smartest engine managers I've ever come across. So you'd Aww, be yeah, t- the chance <laughs> to work for her. So I'd be remiss if I didn't say that.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you both so much. This has, been a, this has been a great episode.
1: Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.